0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
1: Today, I'm speaking with Janica Lane, Managing Director of Food and Beverage Investment Banking and Co-Head of Consumer Investment Banking at Piper Sandler. In layman's terms, Janica helps companies raise money, IPO, acquire other companies, and get acquired. She's one of the most well-respected and trusted bankers in the industry, with dozens of M&A transactions under her belt, including the acquisition of RxBar, Perfect Snacks, Frontera Foods, Essentia Water, and Yasso. Hi, Janica.
3: Hi, Ellie.
1: I'm so happy you're here. Um, And you know how I just, I think you're the bee's knees. I'm so excited for my listeners to get to hear you. And you are the first investment banker on the show.
3: Amazing. We'll try not to blow it here.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Don't don't screw it up, Janica. (laughs)
3: It's a deal. It's
1: a deal. Um, So I'm guessing, you know, I mean, I even think like, I don't even entirely understand your world. Sometimes sometimes when you break it down for me, I'm like, oh, okay. I totally get it. Um, And I think it's just one of those things that, you know, as hopefully my company gets bigger, I'll understand more and more. Um, And my guess is that the people listening to this, are not running sort of 25, 30, $50 million companies yet. Um, But we do wanna prepare for when uh, hopefully we are. And I think also what is happening at that level of the, you know, the businesses that are in the hundreds and sort of the strategic thinking and and the acquisition market does inevitably impact our businesses sort of down closer to the ground. So I'm happy to have you on telling me, you know, what I don't know and even asking some questions that I might not even know to ask um, on, on our behalf. So I'm thrilled you're here.
3: Terrific. Well, thank you again for having me. And honestly, I don't know how to do what you do, which is operating a company. I always say I've never had a real job since I've always worked in finance. And I think the good news, even for companies that are not at a stage at which they're thinking about a transaction is much of what an acquirer or investor might look for in your business is also just good business. So, Mm um, the, the two are typically very well aligned. Amazing.
1: And, you know, there's a lot of sort of, I remember there was a shark tank episode. I don't remember what, what company it was, but Mark Cuban got really like heated and he was like, you're on, you're just on here for awareness you don't really want investment and i think it was because she had mentioned that people who were advising her company had exited and he was like no one should be building to exit everyone should just be building a great company and there's this sort of i think um it's like the dirty secret almost like we're not, none of us are supposed to be building to thinking that we're going to exit because it's so rare and it's so unusual and special, but in reality, I think uh, most of us are sort of building to eventually sell because really we don't have that many options once you sort of reach a certain threshold of revenue is the way that I sort of interpret it. But so that leaves us sort of trying to reverse engineer toward what our potential suitors might like, right? Like (laughs) I'm always thinking, you know, I know certain, you know, Campbell's, for example, they don't have refrigerated. So that's not a temperature state they want to play in. So it's probably not a potential, you know, suitor for me. Um, but given the new sort of environment, we all know what it is. We're all hearing, you know, it's not just a new game, but it's like the shape of the field is totally different. In your experience, what has changed for the strategics when they are looking at businesses? And I guess what's what stayed the same and, and what's changed?
3: Sure, sure. No, and I love the way that you prefaced that. It's such an interesting uh, balance, I guess, between it, how do you prepare for an exit maybe to a strategic acquirer um, And I think what what we're always trying to get across there is that if you're literally just trying to engineer your business so that in two years, you can sell it to a buyer, it's never going to work. Mm -hmm. So we always kind of joke, like, build your business like you will hold it forever, or else you might. (laughs) So we we can get into some of what that means. But in terms of what has changed, maybe we do start with what hasn't changed, like you said, and that's that the strategic acquirers are still there in food Mm -hmm. and beverage for the most part. So I think the encouraging thing is despite all of the continued uncertainty in the world over the last few years, the strategic buyers have been there since mid 2020 and have continued to be really active in transactions. And what I don't think has changed as well is when we think about the lens through which they're evaluating companies, we actually think that some of the factors that get them excited are still the same. So when I think about the the top four items that really get them excited about a brand and a business to start with, mm-hmm. it's typically product. Have to have a product with a reason for being. It is brand. So what does this brand stand for? How do you talk to the consumer? How do they relate to it? You know, what does it mean to people? Mm-hmm. It is growth. Um, and again, we'll get into to how that's changed. But right. but growth and also with that we usually put upside. And then Mm -hmm. the last one is innovation. And so I usually think of that not just as new product development, but also just anything innovative across the entire business that you're doing. So we still think that those four things are the same hooks that get these strategics excited. What we think has changed is along with growth, now we say long-term sustainable, meaning profitable growth. Right. Uh, We also think that after a lot of these guys have done quite a few acquisitions, that they're also talking more about this concept of TAM, total addressable market. Mm -hmm. And really, that's their way of, uh, wrongly or rightly, because I honestly don't love that term. It's their way of thinking about how big can this business become? Is this a business that can never be more than $20 million? There's nothing wrong with that. Like, most people in the universe can never build a company of $20 million. Mm. But if you're a strategic acquirer right now, you're looking big. And right. if big before on average was maybe $100 million of revenue, I'd say today with some of these guys, it's even more than that. So it does feel like the bar has gotten a lot higher there. And then lastly, I would just say that in terms of what's changed, again, after a lot of um, acquisitions that these guys have done themselves and organic growth initiatives, they are much more focused on this concept of incrementality. So if I buy your business, is it actually incremental to what I currently have in my portfolio? Or is it just going to directly cannibalize one of my other vitamin or sauce or whatever brands?
1: Well, that's interesting because, you know, it's funny. I'm like looking at my draft of questions and now I'm like, I might just throw out the draft and go through each one of these things that you just mentioned because you you put them in such a neat order, you know, like product, brand, growth, upside, and innovation. And it's funny because the questions, you know, I sent you my draft ahead of time. The questions all sort of had to do with this, you know, like, but, but maybe we should just kind of go through each thing. And I'd like to, if you don't mind, start with innovation first, because it's on my mind a lot. And in terms of that, you know, there's a couple of different ways that I've heard it sort of put to me. I remember interviewing, you know, I think Lindsay, um, one of the founders of The Laundress Mm-hmm. Years ago. And this was, you know, before their whole thing happened a couple months ago. And this was, you know, right after they were acquired by Unilever. And she had said something along the lines of like, they'd never put their detergent next to other Unilever detergents. It was always like in, you know, high end J. Crew or high end, you know, pharmacies. And that was one of the things that Unilever was attracted to because they it wasn't cannibalizing anything next to them. Um, it was giving them all these different sales channels and sort of, you know, different sort of routes to the consumer um, that they didn't really have before. And mm-hmm. I've always kind of like, that's always been sort of like, huh, that's interesting. Um, like, does McCormick need another spice blend next to the 70% of the spice blends on the shelf that are theirs. And so when we're talking about innovation and that like, you know, they're going to see someone who's chomping at their feet if someone's taking a lot of market share, but they're also probably looking at like, where, where is this brand playing that I haven't been able to make an inroad for some reason? And how do I expand that way? Are you, what do you see more of, you know, what do you, what do you think their, their main sort of goals are or how, you know, how are they looking at it? And I'm sure that's hard to sort of just like put into a bullet point, but feel free to just,
3: no, I love it that you start with the laundress because that's a great example of innovation that is not new product development or R and D related. And Mm -hmm. I do think that, so first, the the actual R&D, NPD side, which we typically think of innovation as, is critically important. and, And that one's very delicate, where I feel like what these strategic buyers want to see is, there is the ability to grow really significantly in a core base of SKUs. And, you know, in some respects, the simpler the SKU portfolio, the easier it can be to plug it into a strategic. So if you scale a business to 100 million on five SKUs, you know, that's pretty easy to get your arms around. But at the same time, you know, you have to do what's strategic for your company. And the strategic buyers will want to see that you have an innovation pipeline. what they mm-hmm. don't want to see is kind of constant skew over proliferation, need to rationalize, unproductive skews, you know, right. the, the desire to launch just because launching new products is fun. Um, mm-hmm. And you forget the, the fact that there's a huge marketing budget and, and other things related to that. But but yeah. the actual innovation side is critically important, particularly if there are competencies, formulations, you know, trade secrets, whatever, that will be valuable to a buyer outside of that though i do think that that any of this innovation across other parts of the business especially if it could even translate to the strategic buyer and benefit them elsewhere in their business mm-hmm. is pretty exciting to them so that could be things around a real d2c channel or yeah something. it could be yeah. d2c it could be you know high sophistication in the way that, that companies are spending their D 2 C marketing, where they really are just laser focused on ROI and maybe able to grow profitably when others aren't. Yeah. Um, it could be things like the, the in-store placement or the channels like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It could be, um, you know, really unique forms of advertising like long form radio was really successful or, you know, YouTube right. stops working and you start doing streaming TV Um, I think all of those things are super valuable. Uh, Social media is as well. But again, I think the more that companies are measuring um, how the dollars spent are actually performing, uh, the better on that side. Yeah,
1: that's actually, that's amazing. Because it's funny, it's like, you know, you're this little scrappy company, like we are, where like every dollar counts and, you know, awareness doesn't mean anything. Like, it just doesn't mean like, you know, we've stopped even using like awareness as like an answer. It's like, it's a dirty word in our, in our company because it just, it's like awareness for what? And like, then they can't buy it. So then what, you know, we've wasted what on awareness. Um, and so you have this like this bell curve of like, at the bottom, you have like scrappy, scrappy, every dollar counts. And then there's this like time in the middle where you're just, you know, yeah, sure. We'll do some out of home stuff, even though, you know, we're in 10,000 doors or whatever it is. And, and then it goes back to like the, the scrappy, scrappy again, where every dollar counts. It's just, it's like funny that there's this time in the middle where, you know, I don't know what happens. Um, I guess maybe it's, it's almost like it's almost like I don't know. I feel more aligned with who I was when I was six years old now than I do with who I was when I was sixteen. <laughs> <So> <laughs> maybe there's an analogy there. Um, but and going back to this, like you know, you know, I had um, Will Nitza on. I guess it was last week, and we were talking about you know building a brand platform versus building a line of products. So, you know, I look at, you know, uh, Cholula, for example, right. They, they maybe had a couple of other things, but really what McCormick bought was hot sauce, almost like one skew of hot sauce to some extent. Right. But then you look at other brands, like I would say primal, right. Um, And they had this platform that could stretch across different categories, you know, still within sort of the sauces and condiments world, um, but very much had already sort of, I think, developed out that the consumer was comfortable with them being in a couple of different places in the store. Mm -hmm. Um, And so is there a, I mean, my concern is that I have to platform like I know that I always knew that a fresh sauce in a pouch in a category that doesn't exist is just I would be waiting for the grocery stores for way too long um, to adapt to my product so I know that to fill in the shoe that we've built of the brand to some extent we need to be in other places in the store but I definitely don't want to be in too many places of the store and I also don't want to build too much of a platform if that ends up biting me, if that makes sense. So for those of us who are building a bit of a platform, I understand. Don't make too many SKUs. I would imagine you're going to say don't be in too many temperature states. Are there other sort of caveats or best practices for us?
3: For sure. And this is always a challenging one because I think it's really easy to talk about it in isolation. Like, yeah, be Cholula, grow big on one skew, But the reality is it doesn't always work that way. Every Mm -hmm. business is different. You have to do what's strategic to your business. And I certainly appreciate that a very narrow single product line strategy can work for some and a platform strategy can work for others. And honestly, I think both historically have been quite exciting to buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, I do agree that if you if you have too many SKUs it can cause a lot of problems just with a long tail, a lot of inventory, lack of productivity, maybe some lack of profitability and even just headaches on on the supply chain side as you think about having yeah. you know multiple co-packers and multiple types of distribution that you need if you're in multiple temperature states and that sort of thing. Um I generally agree with the temperature state comment, although you have also seen some of these businesses like the dayas of the world Mm -hmm. who, you know, if you look at what that business was all about, it was really gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free plant-based and they crossed all temperature states. Right. And that was something that was exciting to the buyer. But yes, generally when one does that, it will alienate some buyers and eliminate them from, from the contender set. Um, I think those are probably the biggest ones in terms of, you know, single line versus platform. I guess you also just want for everything that is part of the platform to hang together in some way. So, um, you know, you, you probably don't want to have Haven's kitchen, the um, sweet frozen dessert business. Well, Um, I think
1: that leads us, to, we're going to jump to number two on your lens uh which is brand and mission um because you know the thing that would hang together the different products would be that they would all ladder up to like in our case you know the next gen sort of you know pantry staple or helping home cooks feel great or whatever in you know In some cases, you know, it would be uh, a certain, you know, global flavor or a, a keto or whatever it is. But aside from, you know, that, I guess who, I mean, I don't know if you're even allowed to say this, but I think so. Who have you seen build out like the Mac daddy, daddy Mac, like brand mission, That has just been really compelling to, you know, those strategics, like, what are they, what is it that they, what have they captured with their brand and their story that tips them into, you know, Ooh, we want them.
3: Yeah. Um, maybe a couple of, of possible examples. So (laughs) one is, if you looked at a business like um you know a perfect snacks they mm-hmm. it's very interesting there in that the the brand was very aligned with a family and i think the more somebody understands the story of a family with 13 kids and mm-hmm. um you know how they created this business to to survive. It's quite interesting, and then you realize how aligned the products are with the brand and the mission. Where you know this started mm-hmm. with their father; he was yep. putting all of these healthy things inside balls of nut butter to basically get the kids to eat it, and and that's kind yep. of what Perfect Snacks is today.
0: Yep. Um,
3: so I think that that was a pretty interesting example and there were a lot of unique things that they did there to help the consumer understand all around the way that they branded the product, mm-hmm. where it was, it, you know, you keep it refrigerated, but it's good for one week on the go. So they really trained the consumer with some interesting little taglines around that, that were attached to the brand. Yep. Um, I think another one that actually did a really nice job around that is um, the guys at essential water, where mm-hmm. they were, um, it, I mean, that was essentially an example of almost a single product line business. But their yeah. entire um, mantra was overachieving H2O. And mm-hmm. and they really made that around... Yes, there was an athlete component and they worked with some professional athletes that they just identified really early in their careers. But um, it was also meant to be just like the everyday human, like drink this water. It's, it is actually... Um, ionized in a special way that makes it better for hydration and you can over achieve in your daily life as well. Um, I think that really helped them to touch a pretty broad audience of consumers and it showed through in the sell-through data, which was also really important in the transaction.
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes, I mean, you know, no shade to, uh, liquid death, you know, I get it. They, they've done something incredible. I just, sometimes with water, I'm just sort of like, it's water. I don't, I I think I'm like, clearly not the target demographic, but (laughs) what, what what is the, like, there are great brands that don't necessarily have, they, they're great brands that don't necessarily have much product differentiation, um, or any sort of moat around supply chain, They've done something maybe clever with packaging. Certainly, um, built a huge sort of force field of like diehards. Does that does that put pressure on the scale, or is that do strategic sort of sometimes think okay, well, but this might just be trendy.
3: You know, I think there's always that risk, especially with newer brands, you know, if you've been around for for three years as opposed to to 10 years or 30 years, yeah. I think there's always a question around the longevity of the brand. And I do think that these buyers are, um, while they all have their own challenges internally, they're incredibly smart and they will get to the bottom of these things in diligence and have a sense for what they do and don't like. And mm-hmm. I do think that there are a number of these brands where you use the example of Liquid Death. I mean, they have been the absolute masterminds of marketing, I would say, across mm-hmm. the entire beverage category. Yeah. Um, even if you're not a consumer, like these little mantras, like slay your thirst. And mm-hmm. even just showing that a consumer will drink flat, still water in a can, mm-hmm. which yep. which is technically also much more environmentally friendly than a bottle and could be really compelling to a strategic Mm-hmm. I mean, they have absolutely nailed that. And and I do think that they've executed incredibly well and not had some of these these fits and starts of, of other brands.
1: Right. Okay. We're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the other two sort of, um, I don't know, things, I don't know what the right word would be. <laughs> the things that strategics look at ideally- Perfect. When they're looking. Okay, we'll be right
2: back. (laughs) Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers. Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine fulvi pecorino romano, mostarda to mitica marcona almonds, and duya to jamon iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched, Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you.
1: I'm back with Janica Lane from Piper Sandler talking about acquisition and exit. So we talked a little bit about innovation. We talked a little bit about brand and mission and um, you know how some things are just sort of viewed through that you know, strategic lens. Um, I mean, we started talking a little bit about products and its reason for existence. Um, and sort of this, like, I don't know the, that Venn diagram of product brand and mission all kind of coming together. And I think that perfect snacks was a really good one. Like, you know, the brand really feels aligned with the products, which totally makes sense with the story and, there's just something it's almost like, you know, who what was the Supreme Court justice that we was talking about porn, right? And he was like, it's hard to put into words you just know it when you see it. <laughs> I don't remember which one it was. I think that was him. And I think it was porn. I don't I don't know. I think so. Anyway, but th- that's the same thing with like ah, something has hit. Um so what were you talking about when you were talking about product? Like do you, is it just as simple as like, is there a need for this product? Do we need another? Cause arguably like you could say we don't really need any, a- another cookie or chip or dip or soda, right. you know, water. Like we don't really, I mean, the world has a lot of that and arguably they're pretty good at making products. Um, so what do you, what do you kind of mean? What, what are they looking for?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I do think that this whole idea of having a reason for being is important. Like tell Mm -hmm. me why you have the right to be on the shelf online at a food service venue, wherever it is that, that you've been sold. And I agree with you. I mean, sometimes in certain categories, when we approach investors or acquirers, the first thing that we hear is, the blah 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 category is too crowded. And I'm kind of mm-hmm. like, what category is not too crowded?
1: Right. Sauce is not too crowded. <laughs> There's no, no one in it, which okay. is a little problematic for me, but it's not too crowded.
3: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Then you get then you get the Tam and upside questions, I guess, All if right. it's not too crowded. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. Little Tam.
3: <laughs> That's right. But I think again, what they're looking for is products and brands that are actually incremental to their portfolio. Right. Um, okay. And I think to the extent that that you have a product that's operating in a category where the actual profile of the product is different, the taste is different, the ingredients are different, or they're bringing in a different consumer set mm-hmm. um, into that mm-hmm. category where you can actually show that when this product is on the shelf, that if you look at data it is growing the category. So it is bringing new consumers to the category or it is causing existing consumers to buy more. Mm -hmm. I think those are both critically important. And again, the consumer is super smart, as are the retailers. So over time, the businesses that actually have products with a reason for being, and again, maybe it's accompanied by very smart marketing like we just talked about, those are the ones that will start to scale. Those are the ones that will have more of a future as D to C brands, again, depending on temperature state. And those are the ones where you'll start to see really strong velocities on shelf. Yep. So I think that's, that's really what they're looking for. Yeah. No,
1: super helpful. Um, I want to talk a little bit about like when we, you know, at the beginning we were talking about like none of us, we can't sort of, we can't really reverse engineer to your point or we're just, it's never going to happen. But a lot of us just don't want to make mistakes that end up biting us. And I guess one of the questions people have is like, when do the strategic start? I mean, you said 100 million plus in sales for like the big ones. Um, but I would imagine that there's a bunch of middle sized, you know, not everyone sell, you know, people sell in between now and then. Mm-hmm. Um When does it start, when, what's kind of like the minimum for like a nice exit in terms of revenue, would you say? Like how, how big do we have, like how big should we really be thinking about just in that first sort of like, if we get to this, we'll have some nice options, hopefully,
3: sure yeah so again that lens that I was applying of the hundred million plus that really applies to a lot of the larger cap strategic buyers in some of the categories that are also more developed so there we are seeing even upward pressure on that like maybe some of the bigger ones wanting a hundred million to now be 200 million oh my but God. I would say outside of that um, First of all, if you are in a unique category or you scale on relatively few SKUs, I think there's opportunity before that. And mm-hmm. there are also a number of smaller acquirers that have been mm-hmm. quite active, and good deals have still gotten done. Um, a good example recently was Suja acquired uh, that Vive Juice Shot business, mm-hmm. which um, you know wasn't of the size that we're talking about, but but a great business and a great transaction. So. I do think that they can happen earlier. And I think as you start seeing any sort of market leadership in your business, be that it it doesn't have to be like number one in the entire category, it could be, Oh, we're, you know, number one at this retailer. We are at the top in growth in this channel. We are leading in velocities, um, in this part of the country. Anytime that you start to see that sort of momentum, um, either in-store or online or elsewhere, whatever your channels are, right. I think that's when things start to get interesting for a strategic. And what we always encourage, given that that this time is so uncertain, is you all running businesses have plenty else to do than like run right. an investor relations department. But yeah. I do think that getting to know some of these buyers early when you don't need them for a deal can be really beneficial in both directions, because the reality is they probably can't recreate what you're doing. Right. And the ability to develop a relationship when you don't have the pressure of a deal, I think is, is critically important. And for the most part, we have found that they do get pretty excited to meet with entrepreneurs. So meet yeah. with them when you don't need them.
1: That's, that's good. That's interesting. Cause I was going to ask you, you know, they—they some of them have these like growth groups or you know, mini funds and, um, you know, I don't know. I have friends that have been talking to strategics for a while. I'm always, I I like that your advice is pretty clear. Like it's good to start talking. I've always been a little bit like, um what if you start talking and then they just, they just decide early on that it's not a fit or, you know, what if, you know, even those investment groups, like what if they invest, but then they don't necessarily end up acquiring the company? Does that hurt the company? You know, but you're basically, I think your advice is like, you're overthinking it. Just start, just take the calls and start talking. It's not going to hurt you.
3: Yeah. I mean, I guess there's always some risk around it that, that they either form an impression early that causes them to not participate in a later process, or I guess they try to knock you off, which again, I think is, is highly unlikely that it would be successful. Um, but for the most part, I think that it can be beneficial. And honestly, if there's, an opinion formed early on, uh, fortunately or unfortunately size seems to solve a lot. So right. if it 10 million in revenue, they don't like the business. And again, maybe that's a little bit early to be talking to a big strategic and, you know, three years later you show up and the business has quadrupled in size. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, hopefully they, they start to change their minds about that. Right.
1: Do they ever, I mean, if, if let's say I started chatting with someone from McCormick and, and they were like, yeah, we, we really like this thing or we, you know, do they ever give that kind of advice about what they're like, do they ever share information on their end?
3: Again, it'll be pretty dependent on the buyer, but I'd say if they want to form a relationship with you, we have found that they'll often be pretty forthcoming with talking about their culture um their values where their interests lie in terms of acquisition targets um mm-hmm. you know what they can and can't do even from an antitrust perspective right. um you know where they think the world is going what they're thinking about internally oftentimes you can really get them to share a lot if they want to develop the relationship
1: cool okay that's fun i don't think i knew that okay and then the fourth piece of the lens <laughs> is uh, growth Um, part of growth is, I think, something we need to talk about now. It's not just grow, grow, grow. I don't know that it ever was for them, but that was sort of what it was from investors for quite some time. Um, so let's talk about growth, profitability, um, shifts that you've seen, um, has there been a real shift from their perspective or is, is a lot of it just sort of exaggerated? Um, part of, you know, what I understood about acquisition and again, correct me if I'm wrong is like when a big company acquires a little company, they are able to sort of take out a bunch of the stuff that's, that's hitting gross margin and, and help with profitability pretty quickly, whether it's like, you know, on the back end supply chain or they have a distribution network so you can get rid of a bunch of, you know, sort of middlemen distributors. Um, is that is that accurate, A, and B, you know, going back to this profitability question, um, are, they st- are they looking for the type of growth that they were a year ago or are they now
3: looking more mm-hmm.
1: at the, you know, EBITDA?
3: Sure. So maybe a couple things to just start that off. I think this is going to be a really interesting period in time as we're thinking about top line, meaning revenue, sales, growth. Right. Um, It used to be that that if a business was maybe growing 30% or more a year, that that was considered a lot of growth. And as things have, have maybe slowed down a bit and and growth has become harder to find i'd say now a growth business in the public markets is probably a 10% year over year grower and in oh, the wow. private markets it's maybe 20 and again early on in your trajectory you should expect to be growing faster than that to gain some scale but but as a business scales i think that you know something in that 20 to 30% growth rate would be very meaningful in today's market and just okay. to to break that down a little bit further, what I think is going to get so interesting is if you look at a lot of these categories right now, the retail sales data basically shows in almost any mature food or beverage category, almost every single brand is growing on unit volume growth, or sorry, on dollar volume growth not, and not declining either. on unit volume growth. Yep. And I think as the ability to take additional price goes away, There may be some pressure here on some of these um, large companies just around, you know, how do you think about growth in this landscape where in all their big brands, they could potentially be having unit volume declines. So I think that as all of these up and coming brands show real strength there, Mm -hmm. it could make for an interesting market um, going forward.
2: Um, Yeah.
1: yeah, Sorry to interrupt you, but as someone who knows me and cares about my company, that's why, I mean, people hear me talk about it on this and I'm proud of it. Like we, we always talk about, you know, we're 20% up in units at foods year over year. We're obviously up a little bit more than that in dollars because we did take a price increase when everyone else did last summer, but a price increase doesn't, you know that dollar number doesn't really mean anything what really means it goes back to like units units velocity velocity units um, and it's something we always talk about and always lean into and it's never too early to start just really tracking that carefully cuz i feel like that's the story that we we're not going to we're not nesse, like the numbers might not necessarily mean a ton Uh, the dollars, but the fact that we are, like you said, we either have really, really strong repeat or people are just starting to really adopt this and it's, it's creating a market all of its own. That's, that's the story that all of us have to try to tell and whether it's later on or now.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. No, critically important. And again, these buyers are so attuned to it. We've seen more work done in diligence around some of the sell-through data and just validating unit velocities than we ever have before. And I think some of that is just, just given challenges in, in their own businesses after um, taking amount of, a good amount of price and not seeing unit volume growth anymore.
1: Right. And then but, you were going to go back to your profitability growth
2: discussion. Yes.
3: On the profitability side, I'd say what's most interesting is on a standalone basis, before we take into account synergies, like you mentioned,
2: mm-hmm.
3: I feel like the expectations around profitability with the strategic acquirers have not changed versus mm-hmm. the pre-inflationary, pre- you know, freight is a mess, pre-everything mm-hmm. world. So what just this is a very broad generalization, it will change for things like vitamins. It'll change for some businesses based on temperature state. But um, overarching theme with the strategics has been, yes, they still want you to grow a lot. They want to see the unit growth. And they would ideally love to see a fully loaded gross margin before taking any synergies into account of something like 40%. And when I say fully loaded, I mean, including freight out. And at the time of a transaction, I think their expectation is also that an EBITDA margin will be somewhere in the 15 to 20% range. Okay. And I'd say what's been most interesting about that is if you look at some of these big acquirers, they have also seen some pressure on their own businesses. And right. in some cases, what they are asking for from these targets, these companies they may acquire, is actually higher than what they're achieving in their gigantic oh. base business.
1: I am sure of that. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, of course they want every, like they want us all to be like perfect companies.
3: <laughs> you That's know? right. But from yeah. a scale perspective, one would right. one would think that their margins have the potential to be higher for a whole variety of reasons, right? right? More, more um, influence they can exert on suppliers, more economies of scale, ability to yeah. leverage fixed cost in G and A. Um, But that seems to be the expectation. And they are still oftentimes evaluating these businesses on a standalone basis. Mm -hmm. Whenever we can, we're having the conversation specific to each potential buyer about what the synergies could be. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes it is a little bit of a black box to us as to how much they incorporate into the analysis and into their valuation. And the argument has always been, well, I'm not going to pay you 100% for synergies that I create. And I'm like, okay, well, how about you pay us 50%? That would be, (laughs) um, but, but we do encourage them to really do the work there and to try to lay out scenarios that work for them. I'd right. say the one consideration, you were right in going for COGS as a potential area of cost savings. Oftentimes, as you know, in these transactions, they're pretty eager to have the team stick mm-hmm. around. So you know, maybe you have some synergies around back office stuff um, right. like, like legal or um, financial that gets outsourced to them over time. But, but oftentimes you're not um, creating synergy by just chopping all headcount <laughs> out of a yeah. P&L.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, and when that does happen, it seems like it's a disaster. Because um, I guess, you know, just from an outsider's perspective, sometimes you can almost visibly see a poor integration, you know, like as a consumer, totally. you like can literally feel it kind of like porn when, you know, it's someone's gotten acquired and it just lost that love and feeling. And you don't know exactly what happened, but you have a feeling there was like no one at the table who was like, no, that doesn't feel like us, you know? Um, Who knew
3: that that deals and porn were so analogous? It's kind of terrifying.
1: Like me just getting to do this is that I get to say kind of whatever I want mostly. (laughs) So it's fun. It's like a really good outlet. Sometimes people are like how do you have time? I'm like, Oh no, this is like, this is (laughs) on the
3: fly
1: (laughs) and say, fuck, it's great. Um, (laughs) so, okay. I want to go to upside also because, you know, part of that upside are those synergies, but obviously that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, okay, here it is. It's doing, you know, 200 million just sounds so big, Janica, but like, can we just say 100 just so I don't yes. start sweating? Easy math. Okay. So it's doing 100 and it's in you know three categories and there's a couple of like really killer things going on, but they've laid out this roadmap where they can be here and they can be here, a la RX. Right? They were just a bar, but they could be a cereal and they could be a nut butter and they could be bites and they could be... Um, is that kind of what you mean by the sort of potential?
3: Sure. I think for most of these strategics, again, if we're generalizing and talking about them buying a business at a hundred million of revenue, Mm -hmm. I I mean, ideally almost the way a financial firm would think they, you know, they have all of these big brands in their portfolio and maybe we're no longer in a world where you create billion dollar plus brands, just given the consumer Mm -hmm. um, is so diverse now, but they really want to know that that business can get to be, you know, three, four, $500 million of revenue over time. And yes, that could be through some of the the extensions like you see, but it could also be, um, I'm going to use the the word that you hate, but it could be there is low awareness, right? Like yeah, one in every bazillion people actually knows yeah. about this, but when they find the product, they absolutely love it. Like if you get trial, you will have incredible repeat Right, And, you know, maybe right now you can show that you can scale to X million, but you're only in 12% of ACV and that's with very limited products. And so if you kind of extrapolate for them, you say, let me show you the path, like 300 million, no, based on this, you know, and looking at other brands in this space, we should be able to get to 500 million over the long term.
1: Yeah, no. And I only don't like awareness at this size. Uh, My whole thing is, like, people, you know, and everyone who listens to me week after week has heard me beat this drum, like, one too many times. But it's, like, there was a minute there where everything was just, like, all about brand. And we just – I think there was this, like, lull into spending a lot on on silly stuff that didn't actually do anything at store level and didn't actually – build velocity. So there are a lot of brands that just like built a lot of awareness, quote unquote, but weren't able to capitalize on it by having sales. <laughs> so yes. I like awareness when they lead to sales.
3: <laughs> Agreed. No, and it's often a challenge, you know, where you have these brands and it's kind of like, okay, well, if you don't have full nationwide distribution, then you probably shouldn't do a national marketing campaign because people are going to get excited and then they're not going to be able to find the product. Yeah. Like, that has no ROI. I know. It's like, it's, it's
1: such a drag for us too. like, you know, we have like 200 and some odd thousand followers on Pinterest and like the comments we get of like, I can't find it. Where can I get it? I it's, I don't have a Whole Foods near me. You know, we just feel like, don't give up on us. Like we're going to, we're going to get you something that you can buy soon. Promise, you know, like whether it's this product and stores closer to you or it's something else from us that has bigger distribution faster, or we have something that we can actually sell online profitably, like we're coming, just wait, you know, and kind of keeping them, keeping them hot. Um, for you personally, um, you sell companies, you also help buy companies. What do you like the most? What do you prefer?
3: You know, so most of our work is on on what we call the sell side. So helping companies prepare for and consummate either a capital raise or a sale transaction. And and sale transaction, I do um, I do view that um, pretty broadly to also mean a private equity transaction um, that would take a majority. Yeah. I would say I typically prefer the um, The so-called sell side. And honestly, I just really love working with founders and management teams. And I always feel like anytime a founder or a team wants to spend time with me, I want to spend time with them because I'm probably the net beneficiary. But... I do really see myself as like a, a founder, manager, protector in these yeah. situations that can really guide them through a journey. And honestly, what we hear, I don't know how to build a company or, or anything. I've seen a lot of them, but I just have the most respect for for what you all are doing. And I feel like when you need this one weird little skill that we have, we can be very helpful. And the one bit of feedback we always get is, whoa, I had no idea that this was so much work and took so much strategy and that you really need to know the space and these buyers. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, that's what we're kind of here for is to give you leverage at a time when you basically inherit two day jobs, (laughs) your regular one and this, and you're also expected to make the company perform as well as it ever has. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you're clearly, I mean, that's the thing about you, you, you know, I mean, you, you, you're like that, you know, secret weapon. You're like that, that like, cause you're not like the emoji with the hard eyes because you're not like, like fuzzy, fuzzy snuggles, but you (laughs) are, you're very like, you just make me feel like I'm not an idiot. And honestly, Janica, like that's huge, you know? I think founders in general, like we go back and forth between feeling like we have solved it and then we're like, oh no, I don't even know what I'm doing. And, and like, I I think that happens at every size and every scale and I've seen it, you know, and I, and I hear it. Um, And you're just like, you've got this, you're doing great. And we're just going to help you navigate what everyone says is a really complicated, challenging process. It might be what everyone sort of is hoping will happen. And like, that's the big, like, woohoo, like we got, you know, acquired, but it sounds like it's, it's intense and it's fraught and, and it can, I mean, it can go wrong sometimes, which sounds very depressing.
3: Totally. And honestly, no question is a dumb question in this world because uh, it is very confusing and complex and things are changing all the time. If we have this conversation in another six months, we'll probably be talking about things that look pretty different from now. So, again, you know how to run businesses. You don't have to know how to uh, do a deal process. That's, (laughs) That's what we're here for amazing.
1: All right. So I'm going to take that as a promise that you're going to come back on in six months. So that's like January of 24, <laughs> pinky swear. Um, and I cannot thank you enough. This was so helpful and like one of my favorite episodes ever. And I hope that everyone listening feels the same way. Cause we just like banged out so much stuff. Do you have anything that I didn't ask that you just would like to say to founders and operators listening?
3: The only thing that I would add, just given how uncertain this environment is, and every time that you think it's going to be more normal, it gets more weird, is just focus on controlling the controllables. Like, Mm -hmm. we can't control the next global pandemic. We can't control, you know, political upheaval, wars, floods, weather events, Um, whatever it is and um, control what you can control with building a good business and with anything where you can educate yourself on state of the buyer universe or your industry or the so-called market, educate yourself, but don't fret about all of the other stuff.
1: Amazing. Well, Janica, thank you for coming on. Um, This was a dream.
3: Ah, Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a ton of fun.
1: And Matt, thank you for stepping in and engineering as always and listeners uh I hope this was helpful and um you know th- th- this is you know this is <laughs> this is a good time to be doing this because my guess is that we're all gonna build in some real discipline that we're gonna be happy that we have when this cycle shifts so on that note I'll um I'll say goodbye and I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.